If I've pressed all the buttons correctly, um, welcome from me. I'm Paul Ducklin. I'm a senior technologist at Sophos, and I'm joined today by John Shaw, who has some very passionate views about computer security and how we should practice it. John, today's topic is GDPR. Now, many of our listeners, at least in Europe, probably knows, know, already know what that means. If we've got listeners from Australia or from North America, they may have heard of it and know that it's something that's looming. So what I want to do today is just go through uh, three basic topics. What is it? How does it work? And most importantly, why do we need it and what's supposed to come out of it? So let's start. What does GDPR mean? Well, so it was the General Data Protection Regulation. It's an EU thing. Um, it's uh, it, it's now in law, but it doesn't come into effect until May next year. And it's all about protecting people, individuals' um, rights as it pertains to their data. So there's lots of stuff in there. It's a huge, long piece of legislation. And it, it, it applies to any company or organization that holds data about all of us. So although it's called the general data protection regulation mm. it runs to what is it 11 chapters and 99 articles and several hundred pages yes so it's not just a law like thou shalt keep below 30 miles an hour in urban areas there's it's more of a it's more of a sort of prescription for a sound digital lifestyle isn't it that's the idea yeah so there's lots of uh, lots of stuff and you could argue there's a lot of red tape in there there's certainly a lot of process description in there, a lot of things that companies and organizations have to do. Much of it is replacing stuff that already existed in one form or another um, in terms of sort of, you know, best practice. Some of it is very new and, and quite onerous for, for organizations. You know, so, for example, you can demand uh, for no charge to, to see all the data at an organization holds on you. So, ah, could... so this thing where it used to say, oh, for 10 euros, we can provide you yeah. the address we've kept. Oh, and for another five euros, well, with the account number. And if we don't do it, we're terribly sorry, right? Now, now, it... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, now it's anyone can ask for free. So, you know, I think one of the concerns people have got is how many requests are, we, are organizations now suddenly going to see for this data? And it has to be every piece of data you hold wherever it is, even if it's some archive tape sitting in a back room somewhere. Uh, and if you don't comply, if you don't do the right thing, then, you know, scary fines start happening. Now, my understanding is that there's part of the background to GDPR came about because of what we've seen happen about data protection in the United States, where, where there are, you know, what, 50 states and various other territories, and they all have their own regulations and are all a bit different. And some do and some don't. And some say you can keep it for six months and some say you can keep it forever. And some say we don't care. Yep. And so they tried to produce a federal regulation that unified all of those. But my understanding in the US, what often happens with federal legislation is you kind of end up with the lowest common denominator. Uh, my understanding here was that the the European regulators actually wanted to try and lift everyone up to a reasonably high level. Yeah, that's a very fair summary. It's kind of, it, uh, so yes, it. I don't think there, there are uh, any member states or 
you know, current member states, I should say. We'll, we'll speak about the UK thing in a minute, but I don't think there are right. any that are, that are looking at this saying, well, that's, that's a lot easier than what we have now, right? It's definitely a step up, I think, for pretty much everyone. Uh, the American example is really interesting. I was sitting talking to a, a, a bunch of American IT people just recently about exactly this topic, um, and, um, and they actually, their general, they were talking a lot about the New York State regulation, which is seen as one of the most onerous of the different states and verticals and so on that have got all their own regulations. And they're actually tending towards saying, we're going to, even if we're not in New York State and we don't operate in New York State, we're going to try and copy New York State because in the end, you know, some regulation that applies to us is going to end up being what New York State has got. So, we, you know, they're actually tending towards going for the most draconian, knowing that's what will hit them in the end anyway. So the EU has done us a favour, I think, by sort of shortcutting all of that. Because if you're an American company that only does business in North America, then you're, if you like, sort of ignore GDPR. But assuming that you have at least some customers somewhere in the European Union, you're going to need to comply anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, the, and the New York New York regulations and GDPR are not too far apart in terms of what they're asking for. I think GDPR is probably still a little more onerous. On the American company or any non-EU company, uh, it's either customers or employees. If you have any, any employees or any customers that you hold data about, um, then you're going to be subject to GDPR for those. An awful lot of American businesses and Asian businesses and so on are going to be affected by GDPR. They don't necessarily all know it yet. <laughs> the law is in effect, right? This is a grace period to give companies and organizations, I keep saying that, but you know, it applies to a hospital or a government organization as much as it does to a company. Yeah. So that the law is, is there, it's the grace period is there to allow everyone to get it in place. The idea is, you know, on June 1st, if you infringe something in that regulation you will be fined right there's there's no more grace period so so people the laws in effect now you should be implementing stuff now that, that's a nice sort of segue uh to the how mm. you know how does all this work if you infringe like if you suffer a data breach that you you would reasonably be expected to have prevented for example what happens how bad is it that's a really good question i think a lot of people are wondering it oh but before I get to that question, we've mentioned the UK thing a couple of times, and I feel like we should do it because I wouldn't be surprised if there's quite a few UK people <laughs> listening. Um, and, and, yes, and, I'm uh, wondering. And, and, and uh, yes, to, the, so the Information Commissioner's Office, ICO, in the UK has made very clear that not only GDP, will GDPR be in effect from May, because we will still be in the EU, everyone, in May, um, but they will continue to enforce the regulations of GDPR in a post-EU world. So any Brits who thought they could get away with it and hope, you know, that we could just stick around for a year and, and wait till we're out of the EU and get away with it, it's not going to happen. We, we need to, uh, everyone based in the UK also needs to, uh, to follow GDPR. The fines will apply as well. And, and the reason for it is, is not just to make sort of, you know, legislators or red tape merchants' lives easier. It's because... The GDPR, I think, is seen by the Information Commissioner as a good thing. It is doing the right stuff for UK consumers. Yeah, actually, maybe, maybe, if I may, I'll <laughs> d defer the how question. Like, what, what will might the fines smell like yeah. in three, four, five, ten years' time? One thing that I've noticed when I chat to people about data protection in general is the conversation generally turns towards 
data breach regulations and whether you have to do a breach notification, whether you get fined for letting data out that you should have kept. But GDPR is not about data breaches, is it? It covers data breaches, but it's actually about the whole life cycle of data and indeed covers whether you even ought to have collected that data in the first place. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. So yeah, of, of the hundred or so articles, I think there are three that are explicitly around data breaches. So the vast majority of the written stuff is about process and protection of data and and organization and so on and not actually about data breaches so the data breaches is what gets the headlines you know the sort of you see the headlines around what would talk talk have been fined by the ico under gdpr and you know it's got two more zeros on than what they were actually fined it's not 400 it's k it's 72 million or something is the maximum maximum fine but um so yeah that it's the data breaches because of that that get the attention but actually you know, I've, I've uh, been at several events recently talking to people who are going through the process of GDPR um, and sort of preparing their organizations for it. And most of what they're worrying about is, not surprisingly, the other 96 articles in there, which are all about things like yeah, the right to re- request data, the right to have data forgotten, what you have to put in place in the first place before you're even allowed to gather data. That's been, uh, you refer to it, that's been a very hot topic because... It's almost certain, according to the lawyers that I've spoken to, that the data that an organization already holds probably has not been gathered with the right consents, with strict enough consents, in order for them to be legitimately holding that data beyond GDPR coming in. Ah, so so in that sense, it's not exactly retrospective legislation, but it means... If you've got data that that by next year you ought not have collected, you can use it up to that point and then you kind of have to throw it away, right? Yeah. Or ask the person explicitly. Again, yes, exactly. And and the reason, I mean, it's a very blanket statement. And of course, you know, normal terms and conditions apply. And some people might have had really good um, uh, templates that they asked people to agree to before they took their data. But in general... Uh, today, most people say, you know, most of the sort of agreements that you you sign up to as a user when you go and hand over your data to organization are fairly broad. You know, they sort of allow the, allow the data acquirer to use the data in all sorts of unspecified ways, whereas GDPR now says you must be very specific in why you're gathering the data and what you're going to do with it. So unless you were incredibly specific in gathering the data, yep, you either need to destroy it or you need to go back and ask again. Being who we are at Sophos, the data breach bit is probably the bit that we get most excited about because, you know, it speaks to sort of to hacking because that's the biggest, guess what, the biggest cause of data breaches by a long margin is hacking and malware. So, you know, why, why does the rest of the GDPR matter? Well, things like this, the sort of, you know, putting a hurdle in the way of people gathering data and putting some restrictions around how they store and use the data should not only just be good for the consumer, as in, you know, none of us really like receiving spam or or being marketed to in ways that we never agree to in the first place, but it'll be good in the sense that hopefully what it'll do is make organizations be much more thoughtful about how much data they hold and where they hold it, right? And that hopefully should make it harder for hackers and baddies after that data to find it, right? As opposed to right now, it seems to be lying around everywhere, <laughs> Yes, and then shared with a third party, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, and goodness knows who what, who knows, in other jurisdictions. Exactly. Okay, so presumably, if you have, if the less you collect up front and the more cautious you are about the amount of information you collect about people, 
the less trouble you'll be in if you do suffer a breach because you can show that even though you didn't mean to have the breach and all went wrong, you'd taken precautions all along the way and you hadn't collected this giant bucket of data just in case. Presumably, the regulators would take that into account when deciding what to do to you. Yeah, they they will, that's for sure. And now, of course, it's a little bit non-specific exactly how they do that. So one of those many articles is is called Security of Data Processing, so that that goes beyond the restrictions around what data you can hold and now says you have to do the right things to protect the data when you hold it. Um, it's quite non-specific. It talks about best practices and so on. So, you know, you need to do at least as well as your neighbours are doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but it also, it does mention a couple of things. It mentions two sort of technical approaches, only two. One is encryption and one is pseudonymization which is a very hard thing to say. Um, and so those are about you know, making the data useless for the, for the hacker if they do get hold of the data. Um, and there have been some, some amazing cases in the past where people have supposedly anonymized the data. I think there was one with New York cab-related data where they, they hashed everybody's taxi badge number or something. But of course, the same taxi had the same hash every time and you could quickly work out who was what. So actually, even the process of doing that, just taking data and saying, well, we'll strike the names out and replace them with A, B, C, D, E. There's quite a bit of science and engineering to doing that properly, isn't there? There is, there is. And, and the, sa- the same applies with encryption. You know, have, Encrypting the data, but then leaving the key to decrypt it on the machine that they hack into is probably slightly, you know, renders it slightly pointless. Um, or, you know, likewise, and this comes to another sort of aspect of it, when it comes to a data breach, um, if you have a breach, it makes clear that if you can show the data was protected, was not accessible, so it was pseudonymized or it was encrypted, uh, then the fine is either likely to be, you know, significantly reduced if not there at all. You know, you can be let off the fine because effectively it wasn't a data breach. I mean, that's all great, right? But it's not enough to just have encrypted it. You need to be able to show that it was encrypted and typically at a point where you no longer have that data to prove, right? So you've got to have some systems at the back right. end gotcha. that can show yeah. that the laptop that's in now in the baddie's hands was encrypted at the point where they took it. You know, that's a hard thing to do after the fact. They typically don't won't hand you the laptop back so you can show it was encrypted. Yes, yeah, so in other words, if you've sent an email to all your staff who have Mac saying, hey guys, you better turn on FileVault or yeah. Windows, make sure you've switched on BitLocker. That's a good start. Yeah, that's great. But yeah. it's... It's not actually good enough in terms of compliance because it only takes one person not to do it for the whole thing to fall apart. Exactly. So, you know, if, if, if you sent that email, if everyone turned on their file vault or their bit locker or their encryption of choice, then hopefully if a laptop does get left in an airport security tray, um, if that does happen, then hopefully the baddies actually won't be able to read the data. Your customers will not be finding out the hard way that, you, that, that, um, that baddies now know all about them. Unfortunately, you'll probably still have to comply with the two regulations in there, the two articles that, first of all, bring the fine, and second of all, cause you to notify all those customers. Because if you can't prove that the laptop was encrypted, it's exactly as if it wasn't encrypted. So you'll still have almost all of the pain of the data. So that's a very important part. I guess we have really started answering that how part. Is that you have to be able to... No, no, I mean, that's great. That You have to show that you've complied... And I think I can see the reason why the regulators would want that in the, in the small print or even the large print of the law. Because if you look at recent data breaches, I mean, a, a good example, I know everyone picks on them, but it, it's a, a rather large and easy target, Yahoo. 
this giant breach, what was it, hundreds of millions of, of email addresses and, and user details. And they had to say, well, actually, you know, we had this breach three years ago and we still not, we don't think they got up financial data. We're pretty sure, but kind of who knows now? So it's almost as though it's trying to get people to do the right thing, that they're not just playing lip service to the law, but they're actually showing that they care about data. Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, look, I'm a fan of GDPR, particularly the regulations around data breach. And it's not because I'm a lover of red tape. It's just because it's actually making organizations do things that they really should just be doing anyway, right? I mean, the, the... Yahoo's a fantastic case. Talk Talk's another one, actually, where just, you know, bad news doesn't get better with time, right? That your yeah. customers <laughs> your customers will find out in the end if their data was stolen because the baddies will do something with the data. But would you like them to find out, you know, a year later that, you know, that, that, um, that this bad stuff has happened and that you knew about it all the time? Or do you think it'd be better to just tell them right up front so they can immediately change their passwords and at least you're showing yourself to be doing the right thing? And, and the answer is always notify straight away. So the regulation is just telling you to do what you should be doing anyway. Same with encrypting. Yes. You should be encrypting your disks on your laptops. It's a really sensible thing to do. Yes, it's... Yeah, we've you and I have discussed this many times before. I know it's come up with Chester and me on the on the on the Chat Chat podcast. The advantage of encrypting everything and saying, well, or having all your web web servers use HTTPS and so forth, is you then don't have to spend ages worrying about whether you actually chose to encrypt the right stuff and maybe forgot some. Like, I know I'm only nipping down to the shops. I'll still wear my safety belt, my uh-huh. seat belt. You know, it it seems to be the right thing to do. There's no point that they're not really a half measure, is there, when it comes to collecting and looking after data? Well, I love the seatbelt analogy um, because, of course, wearing a seatbelt is something that we pretty much all do these days. But for those of us like me who are old enough to remember the 70s and maybe the 80s when when laws were not as strict on seatbelt, or there weren't laws about street seatbelt wearing, people often didn't. And they sort of grumbled when the laws first came in. Oh, you know, what a pain having to wear a seatbelt. These days, you'd find very few people who'd claim that it's a good idea to drive around without a seatbelt on, right? So, so I think encryption, pseudonymization, declaring of data breaches, these are all sort of health things that are just good to do. And if, if it takes regulation to force us, great. I'm glad we're all going to be wearing seatbelts. Um, the other reason I like the analogy of seatbelts, though, of course, is that wearing a seatbelt doesn't mean that you can drive like a loon as you go down to the shops, right? Absolutely. Um, so you still want to reduce the risk of having an accident, too. And, you know, I referred earlier on to where data breaches happen. Um, so, you know, there's, a, there's an organization called the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. It's not, it doesn't trip off the tongue, but, they're a, <laughs> but they're, they're a great organization because they have tracked for many years, decades now, all of the sort of publicly declared data breaches that have happened. And they've also tracked what was the cause of the data breach. And in about two thirds... 70% or so of those data breaches, it was caused by either hacking or malware. Unfortunately, they don't distinguish between the two. Rather cleverly, as it turns out, because the two are rather blurry these days. But um, most data breaches happen because of hacking or malware. In other words, that's the accident, right? A bunch happen, about 20% of them happen from things like lost devices, the lost laptops, the lost USB keys. Encryption definitely helps with those. It doesn't let you off driving dangerously. It doesn't let you off Doing, not doing sensible things to stop the hacker getting in in the first place. And especially, I refer to hacking particularly because a common misconception is that turning on BitLocker or FileVault might maybe stop the hacker getting the data from your laptop. 
And, and it will if they physically got it, but if they've hacked in, if they've got code running on your laptop, guess what? It ain't encrypted anymore because that's why the user can use it. So you need to do other things just than encrypt your disks. Also, of course, it, it means that when I've typed in, like I've got a Mac, when I've typed in my file vault password, I've booted up and I'm, I'm working away. I'm allowed to copy my own files mm -hmm. off unencrypted to a USB key if I want. It's yep. my data. But actually, if it's my data that includes stuff about you, then I now have a duty of care that says, well, that's not such a good idea. Yeah. And actually, when you pop it on that USB key that could leave the organization in a pocket, then that needs to be encrypted as well. And maybe even needs to be locked down so that if it's, say, account-related data, then the programmers don't need to see it and the marketing people don't need to see it, only the accountants do. So why not divide and conquer inside the organization as well so that you, you can show that you've made a good effort that only the people who need to see the data actually can and that everyone else is, is shielded from it that's good for them, good for you and your organization and good for your customers. Totally. Yeah, and I love divide and conquer is a very nice way of looking at it. So uh, divide and conquer by encrypting and controlling who can get at what. Um, another divide and conquer is actually segmenting your network. That's another thing you quite often see with hacking attacks is they'll get on in on a computer that actually doesn't have, um, you know, regulated data on it, personal data on it. But of course, now they're in your network and they're on a, they're on a machine belonging to a user who probably has even if they don't have access, an IT person with a domain account has almost certainly been on that computer and it won't take them more than a couple of minutes to be able to use that domain account and get onto all sorts of other places, if they can see them. Of course, if you've segmented your network, maybe they won't be able to see them. It's amazing how we still have this idea that there's an easy-to-define perimeter and that firewalls are for the edge of the business mm -hmm. and not for carving it up. And particularly relevant in a technology company, I mean, thinking of Sophos as an example, we have a malware lab where we deliberately want to let malware go. It would be it would be crazy to have that network connected up to our accounts network. But at the same time, you know, we've got if you've got anything to do with, say, software testing, presumably you want to test old and outdated versions of your software, test that they update properly and that they're no longer vulnerable to the bugs you just fixed. You don't want that testing to be on a part of the network where it could be reached you know, by hackers who've got in in part A and can now wander into part B. But we still have a lot of people with that soft, gooey interior network, don't we? We do, yeah. And even, I mean, even if they're not doing as slightly dangerous things as we're doing in Sophos, let's say, um, you know, you, but you, you don't want the you don't want the nice person who clicks on the picture of kittens necessarily being able to get open access to the system that has all your customer data on it um, on the same network. You know, so yeah, segmentation important. I mean, other things. I know we're nearly out of time, but other things that are important. I mentioned hacking and malware. Um, I think a lot of people have got good protections against old-fashioned executable malware but actually what we're seeing is most hacks these days don't involve good old-fashioned executable malware they involve things like scripts and malformed documents and exploits against legitimate software and PowerShell strings in memory and, and all this sort yeah. of scary stuff right which sounds really clever but actually all you got to do is google shadow brokers and you can get hold of some really clever stuff without needing to be clever yourself John we're very close to the end I think that actually you've you've, you've managed to cover the why we need this really well let's just finish I don't want to scare people because I do like security to be people to think of it as something that adds value to their business so their customers will think better of them rather than as a cost you have to minimize but let's just finish with that you know what the regulators could do we talked about the talk talk could have had two more zeros on the end of their fine yeah 
What's the worst that can happen if you get busted under the new laws? 4% of revenue is the worst case. So it depends. The different articles come either with 2% or 4%. So 4% of revenue, uh, and, and there's, there's a threshold that goes with it depending again on the article, but it's always whichever is the greater. So depending on your size, it's probably the 4% of revenue that's really going to hit you. And, and, you know, depending on what kind of business you are, 4% of revenue can be most, if not all, of your profits. So it's, <laughs> yes, it, indeed. That's, it's those are the headline figures that have got, you know, the board paying attention to this. So thing. that's the stick. Yeah. I hope we have presented sufficiently much carrot to get people thinking about this not in the stick sort of way. Um, our time is up, so I'm going to hand back to Daniela and see what questions we have, if any. Daniela, over to you. Thank you, John and Paul. So we have a few questions here. The 1st of June 2018 is the deadline for the UK or worldwide? The, uh, so yes, um, so it, it comes into force uh, towards the end of May uh, and it, that is right across the EU, so including the UK. And as we mentioned, any company that does business with people in the EU is, is kind of, if you like, caught in the net, as yeah. it were. So in it the is same... worldwide. Yeah, right. in the same way that if you're in the US and you think you might do business with someone in New York, might as well aim up rather than aiming down. Yeah, good point. Thanks for that, both. We've got a question here from Pete. How about ransomware? I've heard that the ICO state that ransomware is a breach. Good question, Pete. Yeah, that's that's been much discussed in the, in the sessions that I've been in recently. And uh, it, it doesn't. Ransomware is not explicitly mentioned in the regulation, but each lawyer I've spoken to so far is of the opinion that ransomware would count as a breach, um, especially if it's in the situation where you have no other copies of that data. You have effectively lost your data if it's been encrypted or destroyed. So in a way, if you've had ransomware, you probably haven't had your data actually stolen or copied by somebody else, but you'd be in a very difficult position to say that your defences were sound. A lot of ransomware, let's face it, it actually gets in in the first place because you had a bot or a zombie or some other malware that the crooks rode in on, and vice versa. We've seen ransomware where it's almost, you'd swear the ransomware is a decoy, scrambles your data, you go and get your backup, you run around, oh, you restore everything, you remove the ransomware, phew, got away with it, and it actually came along with a keylog or a data stealer that it leaves behind and you don't notice. Yeah. So ransomware, the idea that ransomware could be an excuse uh, it ain't going to happen. Well, I, I always like the idea as well of, of sort of um, the, the idea that ransomware uh, authors uh, are, you know, people of principle who will, <laughs> you know, really the only thing they're going to do is encrypt your data once, they'll take your money and that's it, they're gone. <laughs> you know, of course, they're going to make use of that data in every way they can. Daniela, back to you, uh, if there are any more questions. Yes, we've got a question here from Alistair. Are churches covered by these new rules? Uh, as far as I'm aware, Alistair, I'm afraid, yes, that's right. Any any organisation, schools would be another example that holds data about individuals is covered. But it's my understanding that generally speaking, when it comes to privacy, if you're collecting my name and my address, even if it's, you know, just to invite me to the church fate, you owe it to me not to let that out because the crooks absolutely love that. They'll milk data from wherever they can, sell it to whomever they want. As far as we can tell, eBay's 2012 breach data was used in a very successful series of phishing attacks in the UK this year. So it does matter. And even if you weren't, even if you weren't covered by the law, you kind of hope that you'd want to comply anyway, just because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. It, uh, one, one other thing on that. The, the, um, one of the ICO's uh, early cases was actually against a charity that had been misusing data. They'd effectively profiled their, don their 
donees, whatever, people who donated to them, they had profiled on the basis of... I think of, they're called donors. Donors, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> so they had profiled uh, all the people they held data about so that they could then target different campaigns for raising money better at the rich ones and so on. Turns out they had no permission to use the data they held in this way. So that wasn't a breach, that was more about you did the wrong thing, you collected exactly. it for the wrong purpose, you were not clear, and that's not acceptable. And that was before GDPR, wasn't it? This is pre-GDPR. So and we can so this expect was... that to get much more seriously enforced. Exactly. Good so, Alistair, even if your church has charitable status, I'm afraid it's not going to let you off. Sorry. Thank you for that, guys. How easy is it to encrypt a mobile phone device? Oh, that's really easy. So mo it's really easy because they almost all depend, unless you've got something weird. Um, if you've got a sort of, you know, an iPhone or an Android, it almost certainly comes encrypted out of the well, gate. Well, a recent Android. Android oh, was oh, slow to the party. You're right, but sorry. A recent now. Android, as so long as you've updated to something, you know, lollipopish and beyond. But yeah. that encryption, it's a bit like the conversation we had earlier, that encryption is utterly pointless unless you turn a passcode on. So yes. if you lose that Android, it's not enough to say it was an Android, it was encrypted. You need to be able to show that that Android... Um, had a strong passcode enforced on it. So crucial bits being passcode and show. Yes. The, for example, the reason that Apple for a long time has had encryption as standard, that the phone's delivered with everything pre-encrypted, is it means that if you need or want to wipe the device, you only have to wipe the encryption key so it's very quick and much more reliable to be able to nuke the phone if someone steals it. Um, but as John pointed out, that doesn't stop someone unlocking the phone if there's no lock code. So the lock code is, if you like, a password for the meta password that encrypts your data. And four digits just isn't enough anymore. I think Apple's minimum is six, six now. Yeah. You need to make sure that encryption is turned on on the phone. But even, as John said, if it's on by default, then you need to make sure that you have a sound passcode or passphrase policy that is enforced on every device. Yeah, and crucially, you need to make sure that all of your employees or users um, who are using those devices have got that policy enforced, and you need to be able to show that that's the case. And if you think they haven't got personal data that's subject to GDPR on their phones, you're probably deluding yourself. Um, you know, th Think about all the, the, the things you can do on a mobile phone these days that you, you used to only be able to do on a Windows computer. Um, your employees have almost certainly got sensitive data on those things. We're getting the, we really have to finish now signal from Daniela because there's about 30 seconds to go where she's going to lead us out. So Daniela, over to you. Thanks for that, Paul and John. Thank you all for joining us today for Security SOS Week's webinar. At the end of the webinar, you'll be served with a short survey. If you could please fill this out for us, we'll also get back to you with any unanswered questions. Thank you very much and have a great day.